Good morning. Um, I am going to do something that everybody hates when it's done. I'm going to spoil a movie for you. Um, I just saw Barbie, and I want to tell you how it goes. Just kidding. I'm not <laughs> totally kidding. The movie I'm going to spoil for you is, um, uh, uh, well, it's 24 years old. Can you spoil a 24-year-old movie? You cannot. I know many of you are into like movies. You're going through the whole corpus of movie lore. And I'm going to spoil for you a movie that's 24 years old. To make sure that I don't ruin it completely, I'm not going to tell you the name of this movie. That way you're still surprised when you encounter this movie if you haven't seen this movie yet. But let me remind you that this movie is 24 years old. And if you haven't seen it now, you've had 24 years to see it. This movie, if it were a human, could do everything in America with complete rights except for rent a car. So it's an old movie. Is what I'm trying to say. Everybody get it? Say old movie. Okay, so you're not going to be angry with me when I spoil this movie for you? You're, you're not convinced. Okay, well, here, here, I'm going to do it anyway because my whole message depends upon this, all right? 24 years ago, M. Night Shyamalan wrote a story of a boy who has supernatural abilities. And these supernatural abilities caused him to see a, a child psychologist. Again, I'm not going to tell you the name of this movie. <laughs> Don't say it out loud, because, you know, someone might not have been, you know, yeah. To, together, this boy and the psychologist, they really dig into life, and uh, when asked his issue by the psychologist, the boy iconically says back this phrase. He says, I see dead people. Not going to tell you the name of the movie, though. They kind of help one another embrace the reality and the embracing of the reality involves one of the greatest plot twists in history. The psychologist finds out that he himself is a dead person. If you're laughing, you haven't seen the movie, have you? You just betrayed yourself. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what the movie's called because I don't want to spoil movies for you. But um, if I did spoil it for, for you, come on, that's not on me. Sometimes... Um, Things are not as they seem. When this happens in literature, we call this a plot twist. And this movie, 24-year-old M. Night Shyamalan epic, is one of the most iconic movies ever that involves a plot twist. When you talk about great movies with plot twists, you think about the movie that I'm not talking about. That's what you think of. You go, that, that's incredible. I didn't see that come. And you go back and you watch everything again through the lens of what you now know to be true. But you didn't know that it was true. And so you met the plot twist. A plot twist in literature is riveting, it is captivating, it is enticing. But a, when things are not as they seem in our real lives, a plot twist can cause tremendous amounts of tension. Maybe you were called into your boss's office, you didn't know why. Whatever happens next is irrelevant. The plot twist of not knowing what's coming and then finding out is something that you have to sort through. Maybe you thought you were performing well and then you got fired and you're like, I didn't see that coming. And maybe you thought you were performing poorly and you got a raise. You still go, I didn't see that coming. Maybe um, you, were, you were in um, a relationship with someone that you thought was going really well in like a dating capacity and you introduce this person as like your boyfriend or your girlfriend and then... Some, you found out that you were squarely in the friend zone. Don't raise your hand if this has ever happened to you. But that's a plot twist that you didn't understand, didn't see coming, you had to deal with reality. Maybe um, you're like me. Recently, 
I found out the I found out the real name of a person that I've been communicating with for two years. And it's not the name I've been calling him. <laughs> Plot twist. It's a hard thing to deal with. I had to take a step back. It made me question everything. So those moments where you say, I didn't see that coming. I've made a huge mistake. I can't believe I was so dense. It's one thing to be mistaken about the plot of a movie or to be hoodwinked into a new narrative. It's another thing to be mistaken about God. And as we come to the third act today of this In Wilderness series, the third act of Elijah's story in the wilderness found in 1 Kings chapter 19, we find that Elijah is questioning everything. He's been in the wilderness, and we've seen in the past two weeks that the wilderness is hard. It's, it's hard on our relationships, our relationships with ourselves, how, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our world. It's hard on our relationships with others because we lack context, and, and it's, it's um, really hard on relationships with God. We are prone in the wilderness to be like Elijah, wandering and wondering, God, what are you doing? And today in the third act, we're going to find three mistakes that Elijah makes that Ultimately, ultimately lead to a plot twist of epic proportions. And I think you and I need to pay attention to this plot twist here in this uh, chapter, lest you and I make the same mistakes when we're confronted with hard moments in our lives. We can be spared from assuming the wrong things that lead us to understand our world incorrectly. So with that as an introduction, I want to jump into Elijah's story. He's tucked himself into a, a cave on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. He's weary from his 40 days of traveling. He's laid down in the cave. In the middle of the night, God wakes him up with this question. God goes, um, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's the middle of the night, and God asks him, what are you doing, Elijah? The word of God came to him, and it was, it was not a question of like, like surprise by God, but a question that was designed to help Elijah confront what was going on in his own heart. You know, when God ever asks you a question, he's not asking for information. He's trying to pull out of you something that builds a relationship. So he asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Like, like, can we be honest about our situation? And notice how Elijah responds to God. He, everything Elijah says here tells on his emotions. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, covenant your, have torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me, too. The first mistake that Elijah makes in the wilderness is a classic mistake that you and I are prone to make, too. Elijah assumed he was innocent. This is what comes out of his mouth the moment God asks, what are you up to? Elijah re replies, he says, I'm the last prophet in the world, the last true hope of God ever making a comeback in Israel. He says, I've done everything right. I've stuck to the plan, but now I'm in the crosshairs and I feel like this is unfair. I don't know if you've ever been in these moments where you felt like following God was the right thing to do and, and it only led you to a harder and harder place. And then once you got to that place, you tried to find out where God is, only realized that your heart was bitter towards God. Elijah was wandering for 40 days, 40 nights, trying to find the mountain of God. He came to the mountain of God. He fell down in the mountain of God. He rested in the mountain of God. And when he was asked, what are you doing here in the mountain of God? He revealed that his heart was really far away from God. It is so possible for us to seek God earnestly, 
with a heart that has run far away from God. And Elijah's being sneaky. He's kind of like maybe you're a parent and you've got kids who sometimes flip your questions upon you and end up indicting you as the parent. I had this with my kids the other day. They were playing a game. They couldn't get along. They couldn't figure out the rules of the game. And I called one of them on it because they were playing badly. They were being mean-spirited. And I said, whoa, 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 you're, you're not doing this right. And they said, whoa, whoa, well, you weren't out there to help me. As if all of a sudden it was my fault. This is what Elijah does. Did you hear it? He, he, he sounds all pious, but he's being rather irreverent. He's subtly flipping the question on God. It's almost as if Elijah is saying, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? I've played by your rules. I've been upstanding and virtuous. I'm innocent. And despite all of this, your covenant is being squashed. Your prophets are being destroyed. I'm next. What am I doing here? I'm just trying to stay alive so that you have a people in the future. Elijah assumes, you can hear it, right? Can you hear it? He's, he's innocent. God is the one that's at fault. God owes him. If ever um, you and I can learn something easily from somebody else, we need to learn this lesson. If you ever feel like God owes you something, you maybe not are seeing life clearly. Elijah feels like, God, you, I deserve. I deserve to be spared. You're the one that's on trial here. And the question for us is, um, what does God owe any of us? Um, If he's truly God, then if you have not lived every second of your life in conscious awareness and worship of this God, then he owes you nothing. How many times do you and I find ourselves in the wilderness Our backs get up against a wall and like Elijah, we look up at God and we play the martyr. You don't curse him outright. I don't know, maybe you do. But you you try and do the right things to put God in a position of obligation towards you. I'm gonna go to church because that's gonna make God see how serious I am and how holy I am and how purposeful I am. And then he's gonna have to move my life and if he doesn't, it's all his fault. I did the right things. Or, you know, we were just talking about money. I'm going to give God all my money and I'm going to make sure I take care of the poor and then God's going to have to bless me. He's going to have to be good to me. It's, it's, it's his responsibility to take care of me. He'll be obligated to me. We assume God is going to bless us because we're the good guy in our story. We're the innocent one. God is letting Elijah here betray his own self-importance with his answer. He's come to the mountain of God, but he doesn't actually care about the path of God. You say, Dan, what should he have said? I don't know. Maybe something as simple as what our song just said. I'm not enough unless you come. Would you meet me here again? Maybe that would have been honoring to God. Maybe what are you doing here, Elijah? Might have been rightly answered by saying, God, I just, I'm lost and I don't have what it takes. I'm here because the only hope that I have is you. Instead, what Elijah gives is, God, I'm here because the only hope you have is me. And this is Elijah's second mistake. He assumed that he was innocent, but here's the second thing he thought. He assumed God was inadequate. And now we don't fault Elijah for this. You've been there in your life. You felt that God wasn't gonna be able to show up. He didn't have what he'd take. You'd finally exhausted the well of the miracles that God could provide for you. The wilderness, it's so hard for us to imagine God being a God of plenty, God being a God of adequacy, God being a God of power. 
And this is where Elijah is. He's, he's wondering, God, I was on Mount Carmel. I saw the fire come down from heaven and devour a sacrifice. I saw you destroy the enemies of, of, of you who worshiped Baal. I saw it happen. I saw the spectacular. But I think you've run out of power. And God doesn't really appreciate it whenever his power and authority is challenged. And so God's about to drop a plot twist on Elijah. Look what he says next. The Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. This is Old Testament prophet language for I'll meet you in the parking lot afterwards. This is God kind of throwing down and being like, dude, do you want to go face to face on this one with me? Do, do you actually believe the words that are coming out of your mouth or are you just frustrated with me because if you want to go mono e mono or divine e human, I will absolutely take that fight. And anyone who's um, been around the Old Testament would recognize that this is the same exact invitation that God gave to Moses exactly 400 years before Elijah stood on the same exact mountain. That, that Elijah was in the place where God had at once explained to another frustrated prophet who was also worried about God's adequacy and God's superiority. And God told Moses, God told Moses, Moses, here's all the things that I expect out of Israel and to prove to you that I'm powerful and loving, I'm gonna let you see me. And Moses goes out onto the rock and the presence of God is so powerful and so mighty that Moses has to turn his face away. In fact, he's pushed into the, the cleft. I don't know what a cleft. It's like a crevice. It's like this little, little corner of the mountain. Moses is pushed. He has to hide his face. And when he turns around, all he can do is see the backside of God's glory going by. Anyone who has heard this invitation could remember back to the time where Moses also had the same invitation to God. God looks at Elijah and says, would you come out onto the mountain? But before Elijah can walk out of the cave, this is what happens. All of a sudden, there's a storm. All of a sudden, just like in Kansas, the wind whips up. And outside, the, the, there, there's a wind that is so powerful and so damaging that rocks are smacking against the mountain crushing into each other. But God is nowhere to be found in the storm. And after the storm, there's this earthquake that shook the mountain. And Elijah could feel him in danger, but God was nowhere to be seen in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake came a fire, blazing heat, one that came from a bomb. And, and, and outside, God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was silence. Like absolute, utter stillness. The type of silence that our room cannot reproduce and the type of darkness that we cannot recreate. And in this moment, Elijah felt the entire plot of his wilderness experience being twisted. We're gonna let the house lights come back up so you're not stuck in the darkness. Elijah recognizes for the moment that he hears the sheer sound of nothing that God had shown up. 
that God was there. The silent whisper draws Elijah into God's presence. It's a totally unexpected move. And, and notice what happens. He's, he's drawn out of the cave after the, 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 the wind and the earthquake and the fire. Look at what happens. He takes his cloak and he pulled it over his face, just like Moses did. And he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Before we move on, I don't want you to miss the most powerful, obvious lesson here. So the way that God normally shows up isn't in theatrics or ostentatious displays. God is with us. No, the way God normally shows up in your life is, is through the regular, still, small voice. How, how do you hear God when he's deafeningly silent? You do what Elijah did. You wait until God's ready to talk. And this is what God does. He, he, he meets him out, out in, in the mouth of the cave and the voice, the voice of God said to him the same exact question he started this with. What are you doing here, Elijah? After I've just shown you my power, shown you my glory, shown you that I am truly sufficient and adequate to meet your needs. After I've passed by you and you've been spared, after I've gently called you out of the cave with my comforting voice, what are you doing here now? And I wish Elijah would have said something like, I don't know, you tell me. I don't know how this ends. I'm happy, though, to know that the God of all fire, wind, and earthquakes is on my side. And that, that you can tell me to do whatever you need me to do. I'll do it. I get the picture. I'll go. That's, um, that's not what Elijah says, and that's not what you and I say when we're in the midst of the wilderness either. How many people, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us know the stubbornness that exists in our own heart? That you think God needs to give you a sign, a wonder, a word, some sort of, God, if this is really you, write it in the stars. And you hope that an airplane goes by with one of those banners that says, Dan, this is what you're supposed to do, right? That a song's gonna show up on a radio or like, you know, You'll get a, a text message from a random number that tells you exactly what it is, and they say, oh, by the way, this is what God told me to tell you. Some spectacle, some dramatic event, we expect that to happen, but God, God shows up in the whisper, in the silence. And we don't know what to do with that sometimes. So we do what we've always done. This is what he replies. He replies, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down all your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. Does this sound familiar to you? It's the same exact thing, and this is not a scribal error. This is not some like problem with the, the text itself. This is a problem with Elijah. Elijah made his third mistake here. Nothing has changed in his mind. Why? Because Elijah assumed that God's judgment was imminent. He, he assumed that God's plan and God's project that he had been assigned to was one of destruction and judgment and calling the world to repentance so that God could be worshipped. He assumed that this was a, a judgment, fire from heaven type of moment. Elijah expected to be vindicated. He expected to be proven right in the world stage. He expected God to be vindicated too as he was vindicated. You know, part of the reason that Elijah went into the wilderness in the first place and became so despondent was because 
God's plan was apparently not successful in changing the hearts of people. Elijah had risked his life for God and in his mind, for what? If, if, if the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, if the return of the rain, if, if people didn't see God in the miraculous, why would they ever believe God in the mundane? God needs to be more miraculous. God needs to be more spectacular to take Israel back. Elijah truly believed that he was the only last true believer left, that God needed him. And his goal was noble, but his assumptions were totally wrong. You know, I want to pause here for a moment because I think a lot of us, even living in America, we've got noble intentions as followers of God with wrong assumptions. I think Elijah acted as some of us are tempted to act today. When we think that God needs us to bring about his major reforms to the world. Maybe you know followers of Jesus who have taken every platform that they have access to to apply an Elijah-like mindset. To call down God's fire upon the earth. Upon all those who disagree with God so that God's plan could win. How many people there are who fear that there is a shrinking remnant of followers of God in America who believe that it's time for us to raise up and fight, to win dramatic arguments, to hold spectacular gatherings. They imagine they're the ones who wield the judgment of God. And friends, what we learned from Elijah is that mindset and that motivation it's all wrong. Elijah had God's plan and God's purpose and his place all mixed up. And God looks at Elijah and the next thing that he says is, is listen, you want to know how all of this ends, Elijah, because I don't feel like I'm really getting through to you. Let me just tell you point blank where this plot twist is going to take you at the end of this story. The Lord said to him this. He said, go back the way you came, which if you've been following for the past three weeks, it's a 40-day journey back out of the wilderness. Go back the way you came. Go back to a desert, the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, who, by the way, was not an Israelite. He was a foreign king. God was going to take someone who wasn't even a part of Israel to bring about his rule and reign within Israel. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola. How am I doing with those names, guys? Did I get it right? To succeed you as prophet. Now watch, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God gives Elijah what he really needed, which was a reframed picture of what God was up to. Elijah needed to know, yes, that he wasn't alone, that God was with him, but, but he also needed to know that God was steps ahead of him working, as it were, in stealth mode, that actually God had already won Elijah's battles. He had already appointed people to fight for him. They had Hazael, Jehu, Elisha, who would watch each other's backs and accomplish the plan. You, Elijah, you just need to go back. See, Elijah did what we sometimes do in hard moments of life. We overestimate our own importance. We underestimate God's power. 
and we misunderstand God's purpose. God wasn't coming to bring fire upon Israel. God was coming to bring about a new flourishing for Israel. Elijah found out that God's greatest power wasn't his spectacles of nature, wasn't stopping the rain, it wasn't sending down fire, it wasn't shaking the earth. God's greatest power is his grace. That Elijah just needed to experience the forgiveness of an almighty, powerful God to see that God loved him so. You know, uh, grace is unearned kindness from God. Elijah wasn't looking for grace, but he found it. All of 1 Kings 19, if I could boil this whole entire series down to one word, it's this discovery in the wilderness of grace. God said to him, Elijah, you want fire from heaven, but if it fell the way that you wanted it, if justice, my justice came down from, from, from heaven to earth, Ahab and Jezebel would not be the only ones consumed by it. <laughs> so would you. You see, the truth about Elijah is that he was an AWOL prophet who had deserted his post. He was afraid God couldn't finish the job. He'd die in insignificance. But what he found out is that God is kind of an expert in finding AWOL prophets and that he's pretty good at reinstating you to your post so that you can see God's might and his glory in the future. In fact, God's invitation wasn't for Elijah to fight for God. It was for Elijah to watch and see how God has already won the battle. I feel like I got to say that again because I've lost you in a lot of big words lately. What God was inviting Elijah into wasn't to fight for God. It was actually to watch how God has already won his battle. And God didn't owe this to Elijah. This was given to him as grace. All along, God had shown Elijah grace, grace in his provision of food, grace in the shelter of a mountain, grace in the still small voice, now grace in being reinstated to a mission to go back the way you came, do what I said. God has given Elijah the one thing that he needed the most, grace. Grace to work with God and to watch how God wins. I, um, this is a hard concept to imagine. And so I've been thinking about how I've worked in stealth mode in my own kid's life recently. And realize that as a parent, you do this quite frequently with your kids. There's a lot of illustrations. The one that's most close to my heart these days um, is, is the garden that we have in our backyard. I said at the first service that everyone in Kansas has a vegetable garden. And someone came up to me and was like, not me, I don't have a vegetable garden. I don't believe in vegetables. <laughs> and he said, dude, you're so funny thinking we all have gardens out here. And I said, forgive me, I thought we were all Midwestern gardeners. And so I've grown tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers for the past many years of, of being a dad. And I'm really feeling insecure about the fact that I grow my own food. So I just need to know for a moment, just for me, does anybody else grow stuff in their backyard that they eat? Yeah, there's only like seven of us though. Okay. I, I love this. This is, a, this is something I started because my daughter, when she was very, very little, she came up to me and she's like, Dad, we're out of peppers. We need to go to the store. That's where peppers grow. That's what she said to me. She was very little. And I said, no, now we need to teach you about where th food comes from. And so we planted a garden, just started to love gardening. And my kids this year at the point where 
they're, they're so into it. I come home from work every day and my boys have brought in this whole bundle of today's harvest of cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and they're so proud of it. I even watched my, um, my, my littlest the other day take a, a little cup of water and go gently pour it at the root base of one of the tomato trees. It was just so precious to see they're involved and they're working and they're joining me in this garden project. And every time they come back in, they go, Dad, look what we've grown. Look what we've got. And I love it because they're working with me. But my boys don't know that when we planted the garden a couple months ago, I also installed an automatic irrigation system. <laughs> Not just any automation system, Carlo, because I'm kind of a nerd. I actually am in gardening for the technology. I got one of those irrigation systems that reads the weather reports and will not water the garden if it's rained too much or it will water the garden if it hasn't rained enough. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, that exists, that exists, we can talk later. So um, my kids are walking out there with their little cups of water, pouring them on the tomato plants. But they don't know that I've been watering that garden when they haven't been looking. And they also don't know because they're busy playing video games early in the morning that I sneak out before I get in the car to go to work and I walk through my garden and I take the, the cucumber vines and I tuck them into place and I wrap them up around the trellis and I cut off the suckers from the tomato plants so that they grow bigger tomatoes and I'm, I'm there monitoring and seeing and I'm leaving the fruit that I know they're going to come out at four o'clock to pick. But I'm checking on it and they never see me do it because I'm stealthy, because I'm a couple steps ahead of them, but I want them to feel in my grace that they're working with me, not for me. And so when my kids come up to me, they, they bring me a, a whole armful of cucumbers and tomatoes and say, Dad, look what I've grown. I don't correct them. I just say, wow, great job, it's incredible. This is the invitation that God has given to Elijah. This is the invitation that God has given to you and to me. We get the grace to work with God, but in the kind of way where the outcomes are beyond our control. See, God gives Elijah his real presence with a real mission, real work to be done with real responsibilities, but he shows us that the outcomes are already predetermined by God, that God has already won the battle that Elijah is going to initiate. And I think what, what this tells us is that, you know, when we think God owes us a thank you, we actually need to pause and remember that God is working in 7,000 places that are undetectable to us. And this gets me to the, the close of this series, the final point of the series. What, what does it really teach us about, about God? What do we learn from 1 Kings 19? Is that ultimately, ultimately Elijah points us to Jesus. Elijah the prophet is being invited here to trust in God in the same exact way that you and I are invited to trust in Jesus. By receiving good news, by, by receiving the greatest plot twist in life. That God is for his people and has already made a way for us to live full, free, and fruitful lives. See, the, the whole thing is a, is a metaphor for the gospel. That, that Elijah was spared the wrath of God by the rock. He, he had the wrath of God come down upon him, but because he was hidden within the mountain, the mountain took all the blows of the wrath of God. 
that, that the, the, the wind and the rocks couldn't touch him, the, the, the storm couldn't get to him, the earthquake couldn't shake him, the mountain was shaken and not Elijah. The fire could rage, but it could never touch him because he was within the mountain protected by God. Of course, the rock that saved Elijah, the rock that saves you and me, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is the, the, the rock, the one who took the wrath of God on the cross. By hiding ourselves in him, we are spared God's wrath and we're invited to join God in a battle that he's already won. By listening to the still small voice in his life, in our life, we, we come to have a relationship with him. We're both saved from our sin and our overestimation of who we are and we're saved to our new relationship with the God who is way more powerful than we ever imagined. And we learn that Jesus didn't come to this world to bring about judgment to the world, but to bear the judgment of God for the world. It's a very, it's a very different thing. And I want to say that one more time because I'd hate for us to preach all the way through 1 Kings 19 and your eyes to gloss over at that last point. That Jesus didn't come to bring the judgment of God with all of its fire and tornadoes and earthquakes. But he came to put himself in the way of the fire and the earthquakes and the tornadoes so that it would fall upon him and him alone. We say, Dan, this seems very speculative. Why, why do you believe this? Well, it's because in Jesus' life, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us this, the Gospel of Matthew tells us this, there's another mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's where actually Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, but then Moses and Elijah come too. And I think the way that they were invited, they, I think God spoke to them and said, hey, why don't you go over to the mount? Because my glory is about to pass by. And they find their way to where Jesus is. And Peter, James, and John are looking at Jesus and he's transfigured, his face is shining like the sun. Everything about him is completely unique. And Peter is so struck by this moment. He looks at, at Jesus and he says, Master, it's great for us to be here so that we can validate this story later, but I would love to stay here a little longer. Can I build us some shelters so that we can stay a little longer? And one of the reasons that Jesus says no is because they weren't designed to live up on the mountain forever. But also because Moses and Elijah didn't need a shelter. They already had one. They were just meeting him face to face for the first time. The shelter that protected them in the storm. The shelter that provided them refuge in the midst of the wilderness. They were looking at his eyes, seeing him face to face, feeling his grace, and seeing his love. And Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah on that mountain and saying, hey, I've already won the battle, but here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go to the cross. The clouds are gonna cover the winds are gonna rage. I'm gonna die. The earth is gonna quake. And I'm gonna be buried. I'm gonna rise again three days later. I'm gonna send my disciples out into the world and I'm gonna tell them to go because all authority, all power is vested in me. I'm the God of everything. But I'm also gonna send them with a promise that I'm with them always into the end of the age. I'm gonna send them fire from heaven to be with them forever. Friend, um, if you're in the wilderness today, if you're in the midst of a hard thing, you go, this is great, Dan, I love that Elijah got a second chance, but what does this mean for me? It means this, is, is that if you're up against it, God's got you 
covered. The worst thing that could ever happen to you, Jesus has gone through. And he looks at us and he says, look, I've got 7,000 ways that this plays out and you don't even know about it. Would you just go and follow me? If you're up against it, you need a miracle today. You feel like, God, I just need your voice. I just need you to speak to me. I just need you to like shake my world. Maybe what we learn is that God has already shaken it. Jesus has taken the shaking. And today he's just simply whispering to you saying, I'm here. It's okay. Because I win the battle, you win the battle. So why don't you come? Why don't you get out of the mountain, walk with me, and watch how I do it. Because I don't owe you anything, but you just owe me everything. Come follow me. I've done it all for you. Just receive.